You're at the listening post. We begin with a viewer warning. We will be examining some of the ugliest imagery that's been coming out of Gaza. Journalists are being killed in the Strip at a horrific rate. Just look at the numbers. And a Palestinian citizen of Israel on the toxic media scene there. The clampdown on freedom of speech. Israel's ethnic cleansing of Gaza goes on. The devastation deepens. According to the health ministry there, more than 18,000 Palestinians have now been killed by Israeli bombs. Of the survivors, the United Nations says that half are going hungry, deprived of sufficient aid because of Israel's blockade. The incarceration, bombing and starvation of Palestinians in Gaza on grounds of ethnicity is why experts in previous genocides are calling this one what it is. And what sets Gaza's suffering apart is the media age in which this is occurring, one of social media and smartphone ubiquity. We're getting this story in real time. Gazan civilians broadcasting their own bombardment, Israeli soldiers streaming sadistic acts of humiliation, proof of an historic crime taking place while there is still time to stop it. The global outrage dwarfs what architects of any previous genocide have had to contend with. The question that Palestinians are asking urgently is whether any of that will make a difference. This is the first genocide that we see in real time, and it's the victims themselves who are recording their own genocide. Appearing on camera, talking about what has happened to their families, to convey the reality, no matter how solid, how, no matter how difficult, no matter how bloody, to the rest of the world, even with their own dying breaths. Picking up your phone these days and going through your social media feeds comes with risks, such as finding yourself scrolling through a genocide, seeing what it's like to live under bombardment in a war zone that's more like a killing field, where one side has almost all of the firepower and vengeance on its mind. Where the fear is constant, the prospect of starvation more real by the day. Israel has locked international news crews out of Gaza. Palestinians are locked in, which makes the footage they capture on their phones invaluable, however difficult it may be to watch. Traditionally, all the images that we receive of wars have been filtered down through governments or through mainstream media. This time around, it's completely different. And now you see people around the world, particularly young people, foregoing traditional media channels. Why would I go through the mainstream media when I could just get it directly from social media and from people on the ground there? The fact that Western media have failed in, in giving truthful, accurate coverage of what is going on and have failed in informing the public of um, the larger picture of the Palestinian struggle for, for freedom drove a lot of people to social media. There's ample evidence of, of atrocity that's happening in, um, in Gaza, but the way that this evidence is, is reported on is highly ideological. 
we are not used to see this, this quantity of images by the victims calling for help or calling to stop the genocide. So it puts us in a new situation that are obviously those who understand what they are looking at, those who are not victims of the Israeli propaganda machine, they are enraged and we see huge protests people in the streets in support of Palestine. But alongside this rage, we have a European and American governments who are continuing to support this genocide. As for the Israeli social media space, it has become a breeding ground for anti-Palestinian hatred. Ever since Hamas's attacks on October 7th, there have been calls for revenge there that are now being answered and celebrated. Soldiers posting videos showing the humiliation of Palestinian civilians, laughing as they bulldoze cars and buildings, taunting a terrified population. The Israeli newspaper Haaretz reported that one Israeli army unit has its own telegram channel that puts out similar stuff, material that's meant to mask a lack of progress on the battlefield, setbacks like the ambush in Shajaya, northern Gaza, this week, that killed 10 Israeli soldiers. Homicidal language is also proving popular on Israel's music charts through songs and lyrics like this. That track is at number one in a country where singers and soldiers can now make it big on social media by either calling for violence or dishing it out. You have the Israeli soldiers themselves posting their spoils of war on social media that are in direct contradiction to the official Israeli military narrative, which is one of a just moral war against Hamas. Videos of them looting homes, stealing jewelry, describing Palestinian women as whores while digging through intimate items inside their homes. Images meant to galvanize Israeli society and bring more support um, from the home front towards these Israeli soldiers who are clearly on this path of revenge in Gaza. The way that Palestinians are being perceived uh, in these songs, the references to them as dogs and cockroaches and particular references to, to a biblical and, and historical uh, context. Um, it's terrifying. It, it makes you realize that this is not about what happened in October 7. There's something much deeper and much older than all, all of this. And I think it is actually notable that a lot of pro-Palestine Twitter is simply just sharing um, Israeli social media output because the Israeli soldiers and the Israeli officials themselves are making it very clear what their intention is. They are celebrating Palestinian death and displacement. So there is no need for, for anyone to kind of uh, add an explanation. They're just sharing what we're seeing. Images like this, which can evoke the unthinkable. Palestinian men in northern Gaza, initially purported to be Hamas fighters, stripped to the bare essentials by Israeli soldiers, put to shame. A group we later learned included a well-known doctor, a journalist, academics. The Israeli military says it did not release the images intentionally, that some of its soldiers posted them on social media, and that doing so was needless and humiliating. 
However, that Telegram channel, the one reportedly controlled by the Israeli military, has posted material that is similar, if not worse. The images have shocked overseas audiences, but not Palestinian ones, that see them as a reiteration, scaled up, of the displacement and occupation they have known since 1948. We shouldn't fall into the trap of the newness because this is part of the way that the Israeli regime treats Palestinians from 48. This is not the first time. We saw them many times throughout those 75 years. These are images that resonate for me with other images. Images, you know, from the Holocaust. Palestinians were racialized by the state of Israel uh, in a way that it was predicted that they will be constantly concentrated and killed. What we see now is a change in the scale and in the speed and circulation of images that uh, provoke a rage and calls by uh, millions around the world to stop this genocide. And they began sending these messages to their own people. If you watch Israeli TV, since this whole thing started, Channel 12, 13, and 14 in particular, have done nothing but play these videos. In every TV uh, program, political debate. And I don't want to destroy even a little bit of a They are trying to talk the ordinary Israeli as a main target audience. Do not worry. Everything is under control. We still command that kind of relationship with the Palestinians. They are still humiliated. We are still in charge. There will be one day, right, when the Israelis will wake up to a reality that they committed genocide. So I think that we have to ask how those state apparatuses like media, like education, are being mobilized in order to lead to such a genocide. The channel run by the army, I don't want to be shocked by this channel because the state of Israel runs like this channel. If that means defying a UN General Assembly resolution calling for an immediate ceasefire this week, then so be it. Mainstream media outlets outside of Israel will also have some questions to answer down the road. Potentially difficult ones about complicity in the erasure of a people. Protesters demanding an immediate ceasefire, be they in the UK, France, the US, wherever, complain that mainstream news coverage in those countries reliably reflects the pro-Israel position of the governments involved. And corporate news channels that usually do not shy away from shocking imagery not least because of the ratings involved, have been acting somewhat out of character. Too often, they've had to be led to these stories, to disturbing, dangerous, newsworthy images like these by the hand of social media, by the people. When we do see the mainstream media covering these images, it's really only after several days of these stories going viral on social media, where you almost see the mainstream media being forced into covering these kinds of stories. The genocidal rhetoric uh, within Israeli society and pop culture, that has barely made a blip on the radar of the mainstream media. Instead, the mainstream media focus 
on the mass hysteria on college campuses. All right, continuing with our big story here today, college campuses across the country are divided over the Israel-Hamas war leadership. Surrounding whether or not uh, from the river to the sea or certain chants for a free Palestine or genocidal or not. So there's this huge disconnect between what we are witnessing on social media, the unfolding of an actual genocide versus what we're seeing on mainstream media. Trying to appeal to the sensibilities and to the some moral frame of reference to mainstream media is a losing game. Uh, because by definition, mainstream media, corporate media, serves the interest of corporations, of those in power, those with the money and the political clout, and the relationship to the state system. All of these factors in the way we understand and, and communicate the world to one another. So expecting that mainstream media is suddenly going to wake up to the atrocities being uh, taking place in Gaza is just not going to work. They do not exist for this kind of job. The New York-based Committee to Protect Journalists has been tracking the killing of media workers since 1992 and says of Gaza that it's never seen anything like this. Tarek Nafa is here with more. 89 journalists. That's the number killed by Israeli forces since October 7th, according to the government media office in Gaza. That's more than one media worker killed every day. Compare that to Ukraine, where 17 journalists have been killed since the war began almost two years ago. Or Afghanistan. More media workers have been killed in Gaza than Afghanistan has lost since 2001. What's perhaps most disturbing is the way that journalists and their families are being targeted, threatened and killed. This week, Al Jazeera Arabic journalist Anas al-Sharif buried his father, who was killed in an Israeli airstrike on the Jabalia refugee camp. He revealed that prior to his father's killing, he had received threats from Israeli military officers telling him to stop his coverage and go south. The CPJ says there appears to be a pattern of journalists in Gaza receiving threats and subsequently their family members being killed. Israel has a history of killing reporters, then obfuscating the facts around their deaths. In 2019, a UN commission found Israeli snipers had intentionally shot and killed Palestinian journalists in Gaza's Great March of Return, knowing they were clearly recognizable as such. More recently, Israeli forces in the occupied West Bank killed Al Jazeera journalist Shirin Abu Akla, then denied they had done so before eventually admitting she was shot but by accident. The deliberate targeting of journalists is a war crime. Israel denies doing that, but that fails to square with the unprecedented mass killing by Israeli forces, the testimonies we're hearing from Gaza. Thanks, Dark. Since October 7th, little has been heard from Palestinian citizens of Israel. They are a significant minority in the country. There are two million of them. They're the descendants of those who remained within the borders of Israel following the mass displacement of Palestinians in 1948. They are second-class citizens there, and that has been made obvious over the past two months. Hundreds have been arrested for their social media posts criticizing Israel's assault on Gaza. Demonstrations by Palestinians demanding an end to the war have been banned outright. 
We have spoken to a number of Palestinian-Israeli media figures about the atmosphere of censorship, suspicion, and repression. Most have turned down our requests for interviews. They fear the repercussions, for good reason. One who did agree to speak with us to provide the Listening Post with a Palestinian perspective of life inside Israel these days is Rami Yunus. He's a journalist and former television host. I think the best way to describe what it feels like right now to be a Palestinian citizen of Israel is utter and complete paralysis. It's just like, you know, let's start again. In Israel, there are around nine and something million citizens. People around the world don't really know that, but 20% of Israel's population are Palestinians. Technically, we are Israelis. We have Israeli passports, we have Israeli uh, ID cards, we are citizens of Israel. But I think at the moment, there's no shortage of evidence that shows that for at least 20% of the population of this country, it doesn't feel like a democracy. There's always been restrictions on freedom of expression and freedom of speech when it comes to Palestinian citizens of Israel. But, you know, post-October 7th was probably one of the worst weeks of my entire life. Uh, the atmosphere was terrifying, uh, horrifying. There have been few uh, uh, incidents and um, um, few scenes on Israeli media that I will never forget my entire life. I remember one guy looking at the camera, warning Palestinian citizens of Israel. I remember another incident where an Israeli soldier was on TV with his army uniform and he was talking to a Palestinian journalist. She was from the Israeli Broadcasting Corporation. She was supposed to do like a small report on Palestinian citizens of Israel and then all of a sudden this guest on the panel looks at her and says something like, in the before times, such monologues would be labeled as, you know, fringe and maybe that, you know, TV personality would get even fired. Now it's mainstream. There's one channel, Channel 14, who makes uh, Fox News look like the most progressive, amazing, a news channel in the world. It's insane what's happening there. At the moment, if you watch the most popular uh, uh, TV channel in Israel, uh, Channel 12, and if you watch after you watch Channel 14, you won't see many differences. I think my greatest disappointment is from Haaretz, to be honest. For years and years and years, it was, I would argue, the only real respected uh, media outlet in Israel. But what's happened after October 7th? All of a sudden, you wake up, you open the newspaper, and you see you know, columns and, 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 and articles and reports calling for genocide even in Haaretz. Some of these people are my friends. I thought they were my friends. 
I go to, uh, to the social media and I see one of the reporters just like sharing a photo of a bomb signed by her. I see other journalists in that same outlet making jokes with their friends when they're going to build their beach home after they occupy Gaza and you know, commit genocide on the Palestinian people. That's not, that's not funny. That's not funny. That's really worrying and it's really terrifying. It's become insane. I mean, I feel like there is no talking to these people. So, uh, in terms of representation of Palestinians or Palestinian journalists or Palestinian public figures in Israeli media, I mean, I'm talking about before October 7th, obviously, on a good day, the representation was about 4%. 4% of the interviewees were Palestinians. Post-October 7th, I mean, I haven't seen any people, you know, being invited to talk about what's happening. So it's not just we are afraid to share our empathy and solidarity and our fear, we are also, you know, prevented, prohibited from talking about that fear. I was a host of a show that was called On the Other Hand in Arabic on the Israeli Public Broadcasting Corporation. And the sole aim of the show was to just counter fake news. <laughs> Someone like me, who's made a career out of being critical, out of exposing fake news, it does feel very, very paralyzing and it, it's been causing me uh, some form of an, an identity crisis, to be honest, not to be able to speak up against what we're seeing on Israeli media at the moment. I haven't been posting anything on my social media, uh, by the way, ever since, uh, ever since October 7th. It doesn't feel safe anymore. On October 7th, I uh, woke up. The first thing I did was to call some of my uh, close friends, Palestinian public figures, and the first thing I said was, you guys, something weird is happening. It looks horrifying. Please do not post anything on social media. Social media is being monitored so closely. If you like the wrong post, if you share the wrong post, most likely, most likely, uh, you will get a knock on the door uh, and they will come and, you know, take you. So, uh, just to give you an example on the severity, uh, the level of incitement uh, against Palestinians in Israeli social media at the moment, uh, there's one group on Telegram called Nazi Hunters by Israeli right-wing activists. And what they do on this group, they put a picture of Palestinian activists behind a sniper's lens and they write down your name, what you do, where you work. You don't want to end up on that group because you know you're not going to get any protection from the police. In a reality where so many Israelis carry guns in the streets now and if they meet someone they recognize from that group, uh, uh, Nazi hunters, it could become catastrophic. You have to not only navigate the toxicity of Israeli media, the Israeli government, and the Israeli mainstream, but you have to also be very smart uh, in how you navigate the toxicity of Israeli uh, uh, social media. It's very hard to find Palestinian you know, uh, public figures who are willing to go on camera. And I only agreed to do this interview now where I'd feel, you know, somewhat safer than in the past, you know, uh, few weeks. 
how long can you stay silent? And um, again, um, as someone who's been, I'm a journalist. I made a career out of being, you know, outspoken and critical. Um, so this is the time. This is the time to speak up. I believe we need to find a way to navigate this new reality that we have to deal with now. And we do need to find new ways to keep telling our stories and to keep you know, exposing the, the truth and to push back against people who deny the right to know the truth. Finally, a viewer messaged me on Twitter a couple of weeks back about our coverage of Gaza. She wrote, have been a loyal watcher of Al Jazeera for years. But as appalling as this war is, there are still other stories. Good journos must know this is too much. Now, we are conscious of the stories that we have chosen to set aside as we go all in on Gaza. Big stories. COP28, Ukraine, Sudan. Significant elections in Argentina and Poland. It is a long list. None of those stories are about a genocide, though, that there is still time to stop. And the media angles, the coverage, the way the narrative around Gaza is framed is so central to the way that this story is understood and misunderstood, there is just too much there for a program like ours. This is not the time for us to look away. We'll see you next time here at The Listening Post.